Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is the Page Publishing Book Club. How you doing? I'm Alice Stockton Rossini. Trauma and drama. There's no shortage of it in the age of coronavirus. And I cannot wait to read the books that are going to come out of this highly unusual time in America. In the meantime, Linda Routsong's true story reads like a Stephen King novel. She wrote her book in the hope of convincing women faced with domestic abuse to get out before it's too late. The name of her book? Returning Fire. I never thought he'd shoot me. It's um, about a relationship I had for two and a half years with this man. I had twin babies, and we lived in a barn-style house with no electricity. He was a big drinker, too, and he um, he never beat me. He would just um, smack me and then pull me back to him right away and say, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'll never do it again. Slowly gets worse and worse in the book as it goes on. Then I had his babies, and I really was in love with him. I never thought he'd shoot me, ever. I never thought he'd shoot me. Did he shoot and, you? Yes. One day, he wanted to come home, and I told him, no, you can't come home. We'd been split up for about six weeks. We were still seeing our counselor, Mary. So I saw her her once a week. He saw her once a week, and we saw her together once a week because he really wanted to get better. So when, when I told him he couldn't come home, it, it lasted all day long. It was like nine calls that day. And he um, just freaked out that day. It was, um, if I can't have you, nobody's going to have you, that kind of thing. And and I'm going to burn the barn down, and you're going to be sorry if you don't take me back. And we, we called the police, and the police came out and took a full report because we were afraid. And we were getting ready to leave the barn. It was my 11-year-old son, my 9-year-old daughter, and my twins, his babies, that were 15 months old. And we were waiting to get picked up and take us where we'd be safe. Well, they didn't get there in time. All, all of a sudden, he got there, and he broke the door down and shot me with a 12-gauge shotgun. And the policeman had told me, um, keep your gun handy, because we lived in the desert up at, out in Phelan, California. He said, if he comes with the shotgun, you better be ready. And I said, all I have is a 22 pistol. And he said, well, it's better than nothing. He said, but don't let him shoot you. <laughs> and so I shot back as fast as I could shoot because he was breaking the door down, gave me plenty of time to pick up my pistol, fired back. He was only 10 feet away and he, the shotgun had blown my left arm open real big and he disappeared and my my nine-year-old daughter took my babies into the bathroom and my 11-year-old son um stayed with me i made it back to the back of the house and i collapsed on the bed then my 11-year-old son had his little 22 and the whole time i'm laying there I told him, just shoot him. If he comes back in, just shoot him. He's going to kill us all. He came back in, and we could hear him walking down the the barn hallway. It was like he was going thump, drag, thump, drag. And he was dragging one of his foot. 
I had got him in the thigh, but I had also gotten him in the chest. He got back to where he could see me, and he said, Linda, why did you shoot me? And um, he turned sideways, and that's when my son got him in the back. He left again. He turned around and left again. We didn't even know if he'd shot him. And my son, he stopped and reloaded at the barn. And um, he stood up on the porch watching and watching and screaming for somebody to come help us. And we lived in a, a two and a half acres where there was nobody around. By then, I just knew I was going to die. I I'd lost so much blood. Then the police got there and they all went looking for him and they were uh, the paramedics were up trying to take care of me and they I mean I I wrote it a year and a half after it happened because it's it's so much to help abused women it's a really really sad tragic love story that tells the women you know be afraid don't be dumb like me don't say he would never really hurt me because they can go they can go absolutely berserk and that's what he did and he had told his best friend He's going to kill me, himself, and both babies so we could all be together right before he came. Just an unbelievable story, Linda. Thank you. Thank you for sharing it. Dr. Henry Davis ran drug rehab and education programs before he retired in Sherman, Texas. His book, The Woman of Warrior, details the lives of five female inmates who are living proof. If given the right tools and the right teacher behind bars, they can emerge productive members of society. One of them was a young Hispanic girl from Odessa, Texas that had been picked up on transporting drugs. And she had never been told that she was smart or intelligent or anything. And I noticed when she tested in, she just knocked the top out of the test scores. And so I called her in, and uh, she had a high school diploma. And I put her in as a tutor up in my computer lab, and uh, she progressed down and ended up being my secretary for a couple of years in my office. But we had a college program that I got her involved in, and uh, she just was 4.0 all the way through the college program and got a two-year degree while she was there. And uh, finally, she paroled out after about five years and went back home and two years after she paroled out. I got a call in my office, and uh, she said, Dr. Davis, this is Marianne, and I'd like for you to help me get into law school. You told me one time that I could never be a medical doctor, but that I could go to law school. And I said, yes, you can. And she said, would you help me? And I told her I would, and I got a hold of a judge that I knew that had connections at a law school, and uh, we ended up getting her enrolled, and she graduated out of law school, and she's now a practicing immigration attorney. And that's just one of five stories we'll find in your book. Right. What I found, most of the inmates are what we call, they deal with life from the affective domain, the emotional part of their personality. And these kinds of people fall through the cracks of the public school system. And they're very creative. Most inmates are very artistic. They're very musically inclined. They deal with the arts side of the personality. And these kinds of learning styles are not addressed in public schools. We just we just kind of ignore that part of their being, and they fall through the cracks and take their creative ideas and go for the bad part of life rather than the good part of life. 
And in prison, you can redirect that and show them how creative they are, how bright they are. Some of them have never been told they were smart. For instance, the little uh, Hispanic girl from Odessa had never been told she was bright. And she bordered on genius. She was very bright. And uh, we found that by directing this creativity toward an education that all of a sudden a light bulb goes on and they say, oh, my God, I can learn. You know, I'm bright. I'm smart. And uh, just give them a little success. Help them get a GED. Help them get a little bit of college or help them learn a trade because most of them are very gifted with their hands. They can play instruments. They can draw. They can paint. They can do all kinds of things. Just given the opportunity. Why aren't inmates given more opportunities? Why can't we have more stories like this across the prison system in our country? I think the new second chance program that President Trump has just implemented in the last year is going a long way toward addressing that particular problem. Uh, I was very fortunate. I had a boss, the superintendent of education in Oklahoma, Dr. Modlin, that allowed me to experiment and do a lot of different things. And I wrote what I called the uh, cyclical curriculum that would address people coming into the educational system. And we increased the GED production from about 34 per year to an average of 200 per year in that women's prison when I retired in 2002. But I'll tell you what we found. If a person that comes to prison and sits down and does nothing, you can either, when you come to prison, you can either just do time or you can use your time or let time do you. And if you use your time, you'll work the programs. And if you let time do you, that's when you get involved in the gangs and uh, drugs on the yard and criminal activity inside the prison. And you end up getting time added to your time. So it all depends on what the inmate does with themselves when they get there that determines what's going to happen to them when they get out. Well, those inmates were sure lucky to have you. Thank you. K.J. Harden is another woman who beat the odds and became very successful after prison. And she details her success story in her book, The Pain Hidden Behind My Smile. I mean, you know, you come in, you're born into a family. It's a single parent household. You have a mother who has her own issues, a father who is barely present in your life. So you're looking to the streets to learn how to live, learn how to love. And that's what I had to do. Like I couldn't turn to my mother. I couldn't turn to my father. So I turned to the street. I got pregnant at the age of 18. I had my first child. And after that, I had two other children with a very abusive boyfriend. I was with him for eight years. And I was afraid to do anything. I was afraid to express myself. I couldn't be who I was. I couldn't dress a specific way. And finally broke up with him. And then I ended up incarcerated not too long after I broke up with him due to being around my family. My brother was dating a girl. And he ended up breaking up with her or did not want to talk to her. And it it was an issue that he, he already had a girlfriend. And it was an issue between those two. I knew that they were looking to confront the the new girl, but I didn't want that to happen in my house. Uh, one thing led to another. They ended up fighting the girl, and they hurt her so 
bad that there was nothing that I can do in my own defense because nobody could prove that I did not participate in that other than my sister and my brother saying, well, she didn't touch her. She didn't do anything to her. The judge was like, no, you guys were all there. You're all going down. So I was taken away from my children for almost two years of their lives, almost two years of my life. And I was incarcerated and I literally had to fight you know, for my freedom. I was released on bond and I was fighting the case for a little bit of time and ended up back in jail, hanging around the wrong people again. It's like you can't get rid of the streets. But I was involved in a home invasion that I was unclear of until back to the car and um, the getaway driver. And I just had to make the best of it because once I went to jail this time, I know that I wasn't going home anytime soon. That carried a six to 30 year term. It was a class X felony for that one alone. So now I'm fighting new charges on top of the older charges. And I'm just, I just thought, I thought my life was over at that point. Um, but when you do, like, like that other author was telling you, you know, you get in there and you start learning things about yourself because now you have more time on your hands. So you start doing things. And I just joined the church choir in there. I went to a lot of Bible studies. And they say you get closer to God, you go to jail. So it's crazy because when I was free, I didn't finish high school uh, and I didn't have time to go get my GED because I found the streets were more important for when I went to jail because I was in a a maximum security tier. So I had to tutor myself in order for me to take that test. But I I did it and I passed and got my GED while I was in there. And now you've turned your life around. I did. I was on parole for two years, and that's all depicted in the book. It's telling you the struggles that I faced even coming home. It's bouncing from one place to the next, not having any stability, not having anywhere to really turn. I have my children. I have to give them away. You know, it's a lot of different things that I encountered when I was released from prison um, and just trying to find my life again, find a better life. I have um, a lot of people that have been following my story. Um, I was able to get a lot of sales on the book. Um, I did a book launch in November, back in November, and I had, I had, it was almost 200 people that purchased the book. Um, I've done a lot of promoting, and I always tell people it's a lot of stuff in there, in that book that I've been through that I can relate to with a lot of these women. You got an amazing story there, KJ. Thank you. Andrew Byes sold yacht vacations worldwide. At one time, he was North America's third largest independent booking broker. He recently retired, and his daughter was on his case to share his life story, and what a story it is. The name of his autobiography, Sport, is the backbone to business. The DNA play of my life was molded when I was very young. My father was in the permanent force. He was a sergeant major in the army. So we lived at Natal Command, which was the army headquarters for the state we were in, in Natal in South Africa. So there were no children for me to play with. Well, very few. So I had like a little gang that I made up of about five or six of us, okay? And we used to make clubhouses and play soccer and cricket and whatever after school. And then as I went through school, I found that school wasn't of particular interest to me except the sports side. So soccer was a very big thing in my life. And I focused all my life on soccer. And that's where the sports side of this comes out. 
and I did get estate colors for soccer. I then started my own business after playing rugby at high school. And in 1970, I married my wife and I started my own business. It was an architectural business that I started from ground floor, just me. And what happened after 20 years, I sold that business. And then we sailed across to the Caribbean. We stayed there for four or five years and we chartered there. And then um, we came into America and I just, either I could go into architecture or I could become a yacht broker. So I became a yacht broker and I've run that business now since 95, which is 25 years. Now, I've also found the same thing has happened. There's five or six of us here, and that's it. And I found that I accumulated. That's why I said my DNA was set when I was a young person, and that DNA seemed to follow me. I get three or four or five people around me, whether it's in business or playing soccer or whatever, and, and that would be my group. And that's how my life came around to that. Now, in between the book, what I've done is I put in various things that have stuck in my mind. I've counted 15 different little incidents that have happened in my life that, to me, have been very funny, very strange, and and one of them's very tragic. I saw a little child get killed in front of me, And the child was about 20 foot in front of mom and dad. And we were on this um, sidewalk that was lit up at night. And all of a sudden, the child just turned left and ran across in between the parked cars and ran across the road. And as the child ran across the road, the next car hit her at about 40 or 50 mile an hour. Boom. And it took me 40 years to work out why that child did that oh man that's right yeah so but that that's a tragic one that i've put in there but there are lots of funny little ones and etc that sort of have boosted my life along the way so that's what it boils down to it's the story of my entire life starting from three going up to 76. What a story, Andrew. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break, but we're coming right back. This is the Page Publishing Book Club. Attention all authors. Page Publishing is looking for authors. Have you written a book and want to get it published? Page Publishing will get your book into bookstores and for sale online at Amazon, Apple iTunes, and other outlets. They handle all aspects of the publishing process for you. Printing, cover art, publicity, copyright, and editing. Call 800-204-6099 now for your free author submission kit. That's 800-204-6099 for your free author submission kit. We're back on the Page Publishing Book Club. I'm Alice Stockton-Rossini. Richard Archer was working at Lit Brothers in Philadelphia when service called. He signed up for four years and stayed in the Navy for 22. And only he can explain the title of his book, This Ain't No... I can't say that word. You know I can't say that on the radio. It's four letters, begins with an S, ends with a T. I knew that was coming. Everybody asked me why that title. I started to call it a sailor fella, but I felt that was too much of a soft shoe. 
all the sailors I ever ran into, whenever they got ready to tell the inevitable lie or the immaculate truth, depending on the situation they were trying to defend, uh, it started out, well, this ain't no shit, man. Uh, and this is what happened, blah, 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 blah. And I thought to myself, well, basically, virtually every sea story starts with, this ain't no shit. It's a declaration of the truth. <laughs> um, having to go to Great Lakes in January of 62, it had been snowed in right well. And that was an experience that I had never experienced in Philadelphia in terms of getting up at 4, 5, 6 o'clock in the morning and having to go take a battery of, of tests that were going to make a determination about where and how I functioned in the Navy. It's called the basic battery test. And uh, I, we stood outside at 3 o'clock in the morning until it was about 4 a.m. before we went inside the building. Outside was like 10 degrees above zero. Inside was like 84 degrees above zero. And uh, <laughs> I kind of looked at that as like, well, I got my name right. Uh, because I came out of there with a total score of um, two tests that really had a, a major effect on where you were placed and how you were utilized uh, in the Navy. I came out with a score of 94. This came up seven months later when I was in radar in A school at Great Lakes. I asked a question about why there was so much animosity between the engineering rates and the radarman rates. And I was told by the instructor, first-class study officer, he said, that's because radarmen are among the smartest people aboard ship. And I said, yeah, right. And he said, matter of fact, Archer, there's not a man in this school with less than 110 GCT ARI scores off that basic battery group, okay? And I said, not so. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, I know somebody who's got a 94. And he declared upon his death that no such animal could get in the school with a 94. I said, well, you might want to go check my hard card then. <laughs> he looked at me like, you lying so-and-so. And I was the only black dude in class. As a matter of fact, the only black dude in, in school at that time. Wow. He put the class on, on a break while he went down to validate my statement. He came back and he looked at me totally baffled. He said, how in the, quote, hell, did you get in this school? I said, well, I came in on the Electronic Field Seaman Recruit Program. It guarantees a school regardless of my GCTARS scores. He was out of sorts for the rest of the day. And there were, there were a lot of those kinds of situations. Down, I only spent a total of four and a half years at sea. Out of that 22 years of service, I only spent four and a half years at, on, on ships. One was a destroyer right out of Norfolk, a guided missile destroyer at that. And my first voyage was on the Cuban crisis. Missile crisis? Mm-hmm. Wow. Are you able to do book signings, Richard? Yes, indeed. I've done two book signings, one here in Henderson and one in Wake Forest. And I'm trying to get book signings scheduled with Barnes & Noble. But with the coronavirus highly active in various and sundry places, that looks a little dubious for the near future. Definitely have a point there, but hopefully, hopefully, hopefully this too shall pass. So far with book signings and with uh, support from family, friends, and church family, I've sold over 100 books. 
Oh, that's great. You never know when inspiration will strike. For William Green, it was two movies, Forrest Gump and Something's Gotta Give, that got him thinking about his life journey and writing. The name of his book, Mastering the Art of Failure in Relationships. It's the end of the movie, Something's Gotta Give, and the guy talked about um, recapping his life, and he did it by going through his series of relationships. And that just triggered something in me, and I just started just thinking about that, and it just continued to unfold to become what it became. Mastering the Art of Failure in Relationships is a love story. I like a shortened version of a life dedicated to mastering the art of failure in relationships, really, with God, with those I love and have loved, and with myself. You know, it's about the realization that failing in a relationship is not necessarily failing at love. It is really a, a personal narrative that evolves from my childhood and my um, exploits through life. All of what I encountered along the way that the uh, bond has to do with the relationships I encountered. You know, my childhood friendships that still remain today and all of the romantic encounters that were so tied into my own life's journey all the way up to now. I'm 73 and in, in recapping all of it, it was just something to see a story unfold right before my eyes. So what you encounter is that story and um, all aspects of it that are tied to um, these heartfelt relationships that we all have throughout our lives. So it's not necessarily about being a failure in relationships. No, no, no. And a lot of people have questioned that. It, it's about understanding what comes from failure. So mastering, you know, what for me had seemed like failure was a constant. I couldn't quite get love relationships right. So the scene taught me the variations is learning allowed me the understanding. And that's what I consider to be the mastering of what the art of failure was teaching me. You know, it was an art, an art form, kind of like cooking. You know, we learn best by the mistakes we make in cooking, how to master that one recipe. Well, this reminds me of it's not how you fall, it's how you get up. Yeah, yeah. And what you do once you do, you know, like you can just stand there. <laughs> or you can walk. It's an, it's an amazing process, I think. I think life is. And um, I think that's really the challenge for most of us. Actually, I don't even think it's necessarily about what people aspire to do as far as writing is concerned. I think what happens is, at some point, the question becomes, what are people going to talk about once you leave this planet? So if I'm not telling my story, who will? The value of life's journey, first of all, it's like a, it, it is a, it's an open book, although it has some, you know, closed chapters, <laughs> but nevertheless, it's not just an evaluation, but it's a revelation, you know, that, that the question of purpose is really solved when one examines their own life's journey. It's like this really did make sense. This really does make sense. I think more importantly than anything else, if there was anyone that I would hope to touch in this book would be us seniors. You know, it's, it's a quote by Alex Haley where he said, when an old person dies, it's like a library has burned down. And it's just so many of us that have all of these pearls of wisdom that we just take with us and we leave it up to someone else's interpretation that hopefully they understand exactly what our purpose really was. Boy, you've definitely hit on something there, William. Thank you. How will you be remembered? 
How's this pandemic playing out in your life? How are you getting the word out about your book when social distancing prevents us from getting near each other? Just some things to think about for when you finally decide to sit down and start writing. That's a wrap for this edition of the Page Publishing Book Club. Thanks to our authors. Thank you for being here. And if you missed anything, go to 710WOR.com and download the podcast. I'm Alice Stockton Rossini. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.